Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. The Peter Schiff Show. The NFIB Small Business Optimism Index in the month of December, so this is post the election of Donald Trump, shot up from 98.4 in November to 105.8 in December. This is the highest level in 12 years, right, since before Obama was president. And it's the biggest monthly jump in 37 years. You have to go all the way back to 1980 right, the election of uh, Ronald Reagan to find a moment in time where you saw this big an increase in optimism, in confidence among small business owners. Now, remember, it was Michelle Obama not too long ago that was saying, oh, this is horrible. There's no hope anymore in America. Well, small business owners haven't been this hopeful since I was in high school. Now, why are they so optimistic? Well, first of all, it's more a, tant- a testament to how horrible things have been over the last eight years that people are just hopeful that now there's going to be some relief that Barack Obama is gone because the last eight years have been very, very difficult for small business. I mean, first of all, if you're running a small business, you can't take advantage of 0% interest rates. You can't just show up at the discount window and borrow from the Fed. Also, you can't sell bonds into the bond market, right? Like big corporations can. If you're a small business and you need credit, you got to go to a bank and get a loan. But the banks don't have any money. There's no savings. Nobody's putting money in the bank. 
And no banker wants to carry a risky loan on his books when he can just own U.S. treasuries. I mean, the regulators are all over you if you actually make a loan to a business. So businesses haven't gotten capital. Meanwhile, the cost of doing business has gone up because there's been all sorts of regulations that have been added to the burden of business over the last eight years. Not like they had a picnic under Bush. You know, they didn't. I mean, business has been getting more and more regulated uh, under Republicans and Democrats. But the last eight years have been particularly difficult. And we've had a weak economy. I mean, yes, it's been great on Wall Street, but most small business owners are operating on Wall Street. You know, their customers aren't hedge fund managers. So it's been very, very tough. They've been existing in the real world, not in the fantasy world of government statistics. And now it's like, ding dong, the witch is dead. The wicked witch is dead. And they're all happy, right? Because anything has got to be better than this, you know? And I'm sure that the vast majority of small business owners were voting for Trump and were, in fact, Republicans, not Democrats, by virtue of the fact that they're operating a business. You know, once you operate a business, even if you were a liberal before, once you start operating a business, you, you become pretty conservative, right? Because now you have to deal with it. I forget the name of the senator. He was a very popular liberal New England senator who, after he retired from a lifetime of so-called public service, I think he opened up maybe a, a bed and breakfast or something or a lodge in Vermont or somewhere like that and eventually went out of business because he couldn't handle all the regulations. And that was an irony. You know, he talked about that or wrote about it that, gee, you know, I never realized how difficult it is to comply with all these rules and regulations. Yes, because he's always been on the, the other side. He's been writing all the rules and regulations. He never actually had to live and abide by the rules and regulations that he wrote. In fact, one of the ironies of Congress is they exempt themselves from most of their own rules and regulation. So all the rules that they apply to actual businesses don't apply to congressmen and senators when it comes to hiring their own staff. So they exempt themselves from all this stuff. But of course, once you actually have to operate a business, then you understand how destructive these policies are, which is another reason why I don't like career politicians. I like the idea of a citizen legislature, which is what our founders had in mind, where people temporarily interrupt their careers to go into politics or public service, and they're there for a while. Like, you know, maybe you sign up for a tour of duty in the army rather than becoming a career soldier. I want people in uh, government that actually have real world experience. Now, that might be one of the reasons that some of these small business owners are optimistic about Trump, because after all, He's got lots of real-world experience. And so do a lot of the people that may be part of his cabinet. And so that's another reason that businessmen are optimistic. But, you know, it's unfortunate, though, because I think a lot of this optimism is unfounded. I mean, yes, there may be some regulation that gets repealed under a Trump administration. But, you know, we have been disappointed in the past. There were a lot of new regulations under prior Republican administrations. Look at the new regulations that we got under Bush. I remember Bush Sr. I mean, that's where we got the Americans with Disabilities Act. I mean, that caused all sorts of problems for small business. And that was passed under a Republican president. So Republicans have been letting down small business for a long time. But people are optimistic and hopeful that things are going to change, that things are going to be different. But so far, I really don't have much of an indication that that is going to be the case. 
I'm going to talk about that in a minute when I start going over you know, the budget resolution, but I wanted to talk a little bit about the similar optimism that we had among Democrats when Obama was elected. Because if you go back to 2008, when Barack Obama won, there was a lot of enthusiasm from Obama's supporters, right? Not necessarily from the Small Business Association, because that's not really the bastion of Obama's support. But if you look at the people who were enthusiastically voting for President Obama, right? Look at the minorities, look at the African-American community, right? So the poor, the downtrodden, right? Or even the middle class, because Barack Obama campaigned on how, you know, Bush was there for the rich and how the rich got richer and the poor got poorer. And there was this big increase in the divide, uh, the, you know, between the haves and the have-nots. And Barack Obama was the champion of the have-nots, and he was going to level the playing field and fix this, and he was going to close the wealth gap and close the so-called gender gap, and he was going to do all these great things. And there was a lot of optimism, not only in America, but I remember all around the world, people were so optimistic about this huge change that was going to come from Barack Obama. And you know what? Everybody is disappointed, whether they admit it or not. Right? The people who suffered the most under Barack Obama were the people who were the most hopeful that their lives were going to improve. Right? The, the poor, uh, mid, the middle class, or African Americans, minorities, I mean, they have really suffered. I mean, look at the gap. If people thought the gap between the rich and the poor was wide in 2008, well, it's much wider now. Right? President Obama has presided over a huge increase in that disparity. So the gap that he wanted to narrow is wider than ever. And this is the weakest recovery in the history of recoveries, if you even want to call it a recovery. So even though a lot of people still like to point to these government statistics, the people who should be most disappointed by what happened during the past eight years were the very people who were most optimistic about the the coming eight years when Barack Obama first won. So that is a lesson of how you know you can be set up you can have these high expectations right Barack Obama overpromised and boy did he underdeliver and so you have the same potential now with Trump where so many people are optimistic the bar is now set so high expectations are so elevated for a real change that I think we're really set up for a big disappointment because unfortunately we have got this huge problem we have this massive bubble that um Trump has inherited from Obama that is so much bigger than the one, let's say, that Bush inherited from Clinton. The economy is a disaster, and we're going to have to deal with that. And if businesses, if small businesses are hopeful that we're going to have less regulation, what they're going to have to deal with is rising interest rates and the impact that has on the bubble economy, rising consumer prices, accelerating inflation that is also going to drive up the cost of doing business but also is going to drive down the disposable income that their customers have because they're going to be dealing with inflation. They're going to be dealing with higher interest. By the way, we've already had a big tax increase so far in uh, in 2017. It was in Social Security. If you're a lower income earner, it doesn't affect you. But if you earn over what is $110,000 or $115,000 a year, uh, you're you're seeing a 7.4%, I think, is that what it is, or maybe 7.5% percent increase in your social security tax. I think it's about 500 bucks a year for you. 
and 500 bucks a year for your employer. So that's a thousand dollars that somehow has to be has to come out of your productivity. If you're an employee, of course, if you're self-employed, you immediately have the right to check. But imagine if you're an employer and you employ quite a few people that are higher earners, you've got to pay all these extra taxes. And of course, you're going to ultimately take it from the workers. So maybe you're going to give your employees a raise. So now you give them a smaller raise, or maybe you don't give them a raise at all because you have to give the raise to the government instead. So this tax increase has already happened. And it's ironic, you know, it's, the reason it's so big is because apparently there's a rule that says that you can't increase this Social Security tax in a year where the COLAs are not increased, where you don't give Social Security recipients a, a, a hike in what they get, you can't increase the taxes on the people that are paying into the Ponzi scheme. So they made up for that by uh, catching up. So they had like a double increase this year to make up for the fact that they didn't have any increase at all uh, last year. But if you want to look at, let's say, the budget resolution of an example, why everybody is hoping for something different, but everything is staying the same. You've got all the Republicans in Congress now. They want to hurry up and they want to vote for this continuing resolution to get the budget passed, which, you know, now, ironically, of course, now you've got Democrats coming out saying, oh, this is terrible. This adds $9 trillion to the national debt. Well, they had no problem adding $9 trillion or $10 trillion to the national debt when Obama was president. Now, all of a sudden, it's a problem when Trump is president. But, of course, the problem is the Republicans criticized the big deficits when Obama was president. But now that Trump is going to be president and they control Congress, they're willing to pass uh, these big deficits without any problem. Remember all the 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 the, the, uh, the government shutdown, right? Remember all that, you know, where you had some Tea Party Republicans that were going to shut down the government, right? They they were going to not increase the debt ceiling because they wanted to force force President Obama to agree to some spending cuts. And they were like grandstanding, like, oh, yes, we'll shut the government down. We're, we're really tough. We really want to cut government spending, right? This was a big game of chicken that they were uh, playing with uh, the president and Democrats in Congress. And of course, last minute, they would always back down. But, you know, the real chickens are the Republicans because they really don't want to cut spending. I mean, they were glad that Barack Obama was there not to cut spending, to, to be the bad guy that they could campaign against. This was all uh, chum for the, the conservative base that helps elect them. Because there's a lot of people who vote Republican who want less government, who want to cut government spending. So a lot of these Republican congressmen have to pretend that that's what they want too, so that they can get these votes. Because here now you have an opportunity. You've got control of the House and the Senate. You've got a Republican. Uh, coming into White House. So why not just cut government spending? You don't even need a government shutdown. You don't need, you know, to bluff and act real tough, right? You can actually do it. You can actually negotiate for cuts in government spending. Instead, they want to throw all that away. No, let's keep on spending. Let's not cut anything. Let's have these massive deficits. Then what was all the fuss about? It was all BS. It was all theater. Because when push comes to shove, very few Republicans actually want to cut anything. They just want to keep spending money, just like the Democrats. It's just that they want people who want small government to vote for them. That's part of their constituency, so they have to play to it. Just like a lot of the uh, Democrats are not really as left-wing. They're not really as socialistic 
as their rhetoric. It's just that they're trying to get votes from people who believe in socialism and big government. So they have to cater to their left uh, wing and the Republicans cater to the right. But they're all basically the same. They're all Democrats. They all just want to feather their own nests. They all just want to grow government because that grows their power and that you know keeps them in office, that, that keeps them getting reelected and reelected because they have more power and more money to dole out. You only have a handful of people. You got Rand Paul is out there now trying to say, no, this is, we shouldn't be doing this. We shouldn't be tying like the so-called appeal, repeal of Obamacare to this budget. I mean, that's supposedly why they want to do it so they can just repeal Obamacare. But apparently they're not even repealing it. They're talking about repealing it, but with some kind of sunset where it goes away in three or four years because that gives them time to come up with some kind of replacement, which this is all a gimmick. They'll never come up with a replacement. They're not going to have another big government program uh, that can replace uh, Obamacare. I mean, if we're going to replace it with something, we have to replace it with the free market, which is really like replacing it with nothing. It's like not only do we repeal the re- repeal Obamacare, but we repeal all the other laws that have screwed up our healthcare system. Because I get this all the time. People say, well, you want to go back to the free market. Well, that's what we had before Obamacare. No, that's not what we had before Obamacare. We didn't have the free market. If we had a free market in healthcare, we wouldn't have needed Obamacare. The reason we needed Obamacare was because the government has already screwed up healthcare so much, it was so expensive, right, that people wanted a solution. But instead of recognizing that the solution was to dismantle the government that had jacked up the cost of healthcare in the first place, they made an even bigger mistake by going all in on Obamacare, which actually is not even all in. All in would be a complete socialized medicine, which was probably the next step. Maybe, you know, if Hillary won, but instead, you know, the, the Trump won. But the, what they would do if they really wanted to replace it, what they would want to do is they would try to completely separate healthcare from employment. And you do that in the tax code. Very easy, right? What you do is either you say that if an employer provides healthcare to his workers, then the value of that healthcare, that insurance, is included in taxable income. And now you can also lower the tax rates because now you have more income that's subject to tax. So you can lower the rates. But now workers are indifferent between money and insurance. See, right now, workers have an incentive. Don't pay me cash where I have to pay income taxes. Just give me some health insurance, which I get tax-free. So you want to change that. Of course, the other way to change it, which seems to be more politically acceptable, is just to let individuals fully deduct whatever they spend on their health insurance. Not, you make, not if you're itemizing, but regardless, anybody who pays income taxes, if you buy health insurance, you get to deduct the cost. And so if you could deduct the cost, then people would be indifferent. And then more people would get their health insurance the way they get their auto insurance or their fire insurance or their homeowner's insurance, right? You don't get these things from your boss. The only insurance that you get from your boss is your health insurance, and that's because of the tax code. So get rid of those incentives to do that. Get businesses out of the healthcare industry and allow individuals to shop around to buy their own insurance. Because the big problem in medical care is that too many people use insurance for everyday items. We don't want people, you know, spraining their ankle and then, you know, billing it to the insurance company. I don't even want people having a baby and having the insurance paid for it. I mean, you know, things like that should be paid for 
out of pocket with cash the way they were before everybody started doing it through insurance. But once you have a third-party payer, you no longer have free market controls on costs and costs skyrocket. If you look at all the areas of medicine where insurance is not involved, like eye LASIK surgery or various cosmetic surgeries, what you'll find over the last you know, 10, 20 years is the price of these procedures keeps going down. It doesn't go up, it goes down. And the quality gets better and better and better. That's what the free market does. It lowers price and expands qual- and increases uh, quality. And so that's what we need in healthcare. And there are a lot of other free market reforms that can happen that will reduce the cost of healthcare. We can also have tort reform. There are a lot of things that government can do that, or rather undo, that would bring down the cost of healthcare. And of course, you know, we should be getting rid of Medicaid and Medicare and all these things. I mean, because before we had any of this stuff, we had a much better healthcare system. It was more affordable. And doctors had a lot of free time. They didn't have to spend all their time filling out forms and paperwork. So to the extent that there were poor people who couldn't afford medical care, they got it for free. I mean, my father grew up in a relatively poor family. He always told me he didn't know whether whether he was upper lower class or lower middle class, but he was somewhere in there. Uh, His father was a carpenter. His mother was a stay-at-home mom, like everybody else's mother. He had seven sisters. He was the youngest of eight, and he was the only boy. But um, his mother didn't have a job outside the house. His father was, you know, a blue-collar worker. But whenever he got sick, his mother called the doctor, and he came to the house, and there was medical care. And he never remembers not being able to afford health care, it ever being a problem. In fact, my father used to tell me when he got into the health insurance business in the 1960s, his most popular plan uh, was a catastrophic insurance plan, and it was $2 a month. That was your premium, $2 a month. I mean, who couldn't afford $2 a month? I mean, even in the 60s, $2 a month wasn't a lot of money. And he said there was like a $5,000 maximum. That was the most you could collect for catastrophic insurance. And he said in his entire career selling that insurance, he never got anybody whoever put in a claim that made it up to $5,000. I mean, all kinds of bad things happened to people. They were in hospitals for long periods of time. I mean, he sold a lot of insurance in the state of Connecticut. And it was impossible to run up a hospital bill that was as high as $5,000. That's how inexpensive medicine was. In fact, he always tells me about the time where they first introduced Medicare and he was trying to help his mother uh, you know, deal with his doctor's bill. And as soon as the government introduced this, the doctor started charging her two or three times as much as he used to charge her. And his point was, well, it doesn't matter because now the government is paying for it. So it's still going to cost you the same. It's just that this is how much we bill the government. I mean, it was a boondoggle immediately. As soon as it came in, costs started to skyrocket because the patients didn't care what it cost because the government was paying. And the doctors knew that the patients weren't paying. It was the government. So they didn't feel bad about overcharging. So government got into healthcare and screwed it up. And what we really need is to get the government out of health care now. So to the extent that we uh, repeal and replace Obamacare, we don't want to replace it with more government. We want to replace it with less government. We want to replace it with a deregulation package. But, you know, when most people hear repeal and replace, it's something else. In fact, now Barack Obama is saying, yes, let's repeal Obamacare and replace it with something better. He's challenging the Republicans to replace it with something better, meaning something that gives you more free stuff, right, which they can't do. So now, you know, they're in a box. I mean, Obama's like, okay, I called your bluff. Fine. 
I'm all in favor of appealing Obamacare. Just let me know what you're going to replace it with. And if it's better, I'm in favor of it. Because, of course, it's not going to be better because there is no bigger, better program. We want to replace it with the free market. But, of course, that's not what most people have in mind when they hear about replacement. They just want to get something for free that's cheaper. See, the problem is people found out that the free lunch that Obama was offering was just too expensive. They want the Republicans to come up with a cheaper free lunch. What we need is for the Republicans to tell people there's no such thing as a free lunch. And if you really want to eat cheap, you better do it at a free market restaurant, not at a government cafeteria. And so we need to go back to the free market. Now, I wanted to wrap this up by talking about another government problem, uh, another example of liberal hypocrisy. I was watching a segment on 60 Minutes. and I, I didn't watch it live, so this might have been a week or two old, this particular 60 Minutes. But it was on Chicago and how it's now the crime capital of America. I think there's more crime now in Chicago, more murders in Chicago than you know New York City and I forget some other big city combined. I'm not sure which one it was, Los Angeles or you know D.C. or Philadelphia. But there's all all these murders going on, and so 60 Minutes wanted to investigate you know why there was this big increase in violence and crime and murder. And it seemed that they were very shocked to find out that the reason for the the big increase in crime was that police were not doing their job the way they used to. They weren't being as aggressive in policing. They weren't arresting nearly as many people. They weren't stopping nearly as many people, right? They showed this huge collapse in in stops and in arrests. And as a result of the fact that the police were basically backing off, now the criminals were running amok and there was all this uh, crime and all this murder. And of course, they don't even get the irony here. You know, not once, not once in this entire 60 Minutes report did they mention Black Lives Matter. Right? Because Black Lives Matter should have been at the forefront of this report. Because it's black lives, blacks that are losing their lives in Chicago. And those black lives should matter. And the reason so many blacks are dying is because of organizations like Black Lives Matter. Because of the controversies. Police in Chicago are afraid to do anything. They're afraid to pull out a gun. They're afraid to be confrontational because somebody might have a cell phone. They're going to take a YouTube video and it's going to go viral. And you know some of these could be plants. You probably have people in Chicago just baiting the police hoping that they'll do something so they can put it up on YouTube, right? And people are afraid to use their gun in self-defense because, you know, look at, look at what's happened. And, you know, you also had lawsuits. The ACLU came in and they were suing these uh, Chicago for police for racism because they were saying, look, you know, you are disproportionately arresting or stopping uh, blacks and therefore you're racist. And, and now, of course, the police department, if you stop somebody and arrest them, and of course, if they happen to be black, you have extra forms that you need to fill out to prove that you stopped this person who happens to be black, not because they were black, but you have to prove that there was no racism in the arrest, even if the arresting officer is black himself, right? But of course, the paperwork takes a lot of time, and, and I, don't, I don't think the police even want to do it. They don't even want to take a chance, right? They're afraid to do their job. And now you have all the people in Chicago who are mad at these police because the police aren't uh, policing strong enough. But wait a minute. 
They were also mad at the police for policing too hard, right? Why are you shooting an unarmed person? Uh, why, you know, so now the police are afraid to shoot anybody. You know, also too, it's like, hey, don't shoot somebody if they're just running away. Well, if, you know, if the, if the criminals know that the police won't shoot, well, then why, why stop? If someone says, stop, freeze, police, why would you stop? Just keep on running because they're not going to shoot you. I mean, what's gonna, what, they're going to ruin their lives if they shoot you. Right? If the police are afraid to shoot, I mean, there was a woman there, I think, that I forget her name. She was a policewoman. She was so afraid to use her gun that she got beaten uh, into a coma. I'm not even sure if she's recovered. And because she, she was afraid to pull out a gun uh, because of what had happened to other police who had done that. So we've had this massive backlash. But none of this 60 Minutes report was really blaming any of this. Right? They were kind of blaming the police like, hey, why are you guys not doing your job? This is terrible. You're letting the community down. The community let the police down. Now, I'm not saying that all police are angels and there's not some police that abuse their power. Of course they do. Of course they do. But by and large, you have a lot of honest policemen doing a very dangerous job. And you've got these, you know, Black Lives Matter, these, you know, the ACLU somehow saying, oh, because a disproportionate percentage of the people that you arrest are black, you're racist. You're not racist. If blacks are committing a disproportionate percentage of the crime, well, guess what? You know, and if you're a young black male and you're doing, you know, you're going to look suspicious to a lot of policemen. And so, you know, you're going to get stopped. And if the police are afraid to stop a suspicious looking young black male, well, then they might commit a crime that they might otherwise have not committed. But you know what? If I was a young black male and I was just hanging out uh, in, in a certain neighborhood, dressed a certain way, and a policeman happened to stop me and ask to see some ID and ask me what I was doing, I wouldn't get mad at the policeman for being a racist. You know who I would get mad at? Other young black man who gave me a bad rap. That's the reality. There are so many young black men that are committing crimes that they give the majority of young black men who are not committing crimes a bad reputation and they have to deal with it. But it's not because the cops are racists. It's because the cops are realists. They're playing the probabilities, right? And don't blame the cops for playing the probabilities. Blame the other young black men. And maybe let's say, let's say 20%. I don't even know what the correct percentage is. But let's say 20% of young black males are engaged in criminal activity. That means 80% are not. So 80% are law-abiding. But if one in five are not... And you're a cop and you see a young uh, black uh, kid hanging out. I mean, hey, if he's got a one in five percent chance that maybe he's about to commit a crime, maybe I can stop that crime. Let me let me ask him a question. You know, as opposed if you happen to be an elderly white woman, right? How many crimes are committed by elderly white women? Probably not that many, right? So what's the point of stopping? You see an elderly white woman. All right, she's probably not about to commit a crime, right? If there were a lot of elderly white women committing crimes, if 20% of elderly white women were committing crimes, well, then police would be, you know, more scrutinous when they saw an elderly white woman. Okay, let's see what she's doing. She might be, you know, up to no good, right? So it's not the policeman's fault. It's the criminal's fault. But all of this rush to condemn the police by saying you're a bunch of racists, now there's a backlash. And now look at all the black lives that are being lost. Don't these black lives matter? I mean, is it only when a black loses his life to a white policeman that his life matters? But if you have 10 times as many or 100 times as many young blacks dying based on other young blacks killing them, 
somehow those lives matter a lot less? I don't think so. So now a lot more people, a lot more young black people are being killed because supposedly black lives matter. How could this not have even been brought up in this, in this interview? You know, and, and 60 Minutes is, you know, bastion of liberals. Shouldn't they rethink this? Shouldn't they rethink this premise? But again, this is just a microcosm of government in general. How they never understand the implications of their policies. You know, whether it's minimum wage laws or occupational licensing laws or health care laws or any of, these, any of these programs that they have that they think are so well-intentioned. Right. All of this, you know, Black Lives Matter is, oh, let's make sure, you know, that the police are not stopping people based strictly on race. We're going to make sure there's no racism. All this well-intentioned stuff. What is the result? Chicago is a war zone. Right. People are dying like crazy in that city. And hey, you know, everybody feels good about it. Right. Because, oh, we're, we're doing the right thing. Just like, look, you know, look at South Africa. Right? I mean, before apartheid ended, right? It was, oh, every, all the liberals, and I'm not, you know, not that I'm uh, saying that apartheid was a great form of government. I'm not, you know, talking about, you know, I'm not defending apartheid. I'm just putting things in perspective, right? So before apartheid ended, right, it was a huge movement, you know, don't play, uh, you know, the, the, the bands wouldn't go to Sun City uh, in South Africa. Everybody was boycotting. I mean, they were even boycotting uh, Cougarans for a while, right? You wouldn't even buy Cougarans because of, it was because of you were protesting South Africa, right? Because of the apartheid. Well, apartheid ended, right? And now blacks control uh, South Africa, right? Democracy, one man, one vote. Of course, the blacks far outnumber whites. And so the minute that happened, right, the government is all black, right? Well, what's happened to South Africa since apartheid ended? It's gone straight downhill. It's a disaster. I mean, before apartheid ended, blacks in Africa, all throughout sub-Saharan Africa, they all wanted to move to South Africa. I mean, there was huge immigration of young blacks into South Africa because that's where all the opportunity was, right? Despite how bad apartheid was, it was better than every place else. People wanted to come there, right? You had the higher standard of living, uh, in sub-Saharan Africa was was in South Africa. Now it's the other way around. People want to leave. No one wants to come to South Africa anymore. Most young blacks in South Africa can't wait to get out. It's now like the murder capital of the world. It's the rape capital of the world. I forget what it is, but more women per capita are raped in South Africa than any country in the world. I mean, this wasn't the case under apartheid, but it is now, right? So it is a disaster. Uh, life expectancy has collapsed for blacks in South Africa. Real income, medium income, has collapsed for blacks in South Africa. Blacks in South Africa have a much lower standard of living today than they had under apartheid, right? Yes, they have a black government, but that black government is actually doing a worse job than the white government, right? So, but does anybody care? All the people that were protesting apartheid, none of them are protesting South Africa today, even though for blacks, things are worse, right? All of the statistics that you want to look at to measure well-being, right, life expectancy, employment, income, you want to look at net immigration, emigration, any objective measure of quality of life, it is substantially lower today for blacks. I'm not even talking about whites. For blacks than it was when, when apartheid ended. Yet nobody cares, right? No one from the left wants to condemn what's going on because they don't care anymore. Because as long as blacks 
are oppressing other blacks, as long as blacks are suffering because of things other blacks are doing, no one gives a damn. That's the same thing about Chicago, right? No one cares, right? If the blacks are running the city of Chicago into the ground, and if a bunch of black criminals are killing innocent black victims, no one cares. But if, hey, a white policeman happens to kill a black, so that, that, that matters, then it matters. But if it's blacks doing all these crimes, if blacks are killing other blacks, if blacks are suffering because of bad laws and bad rules that are put upon them by other blacks, it's okay. If somebody white does something that harms somebody that's black, oh, that's bad. We better protest that, right? That is real racism. It's the left, right? For all their supposed tolerance, they're the racists because they don't care at all about the bad things that happen to blacks if They're the consequence of the actions of other blacks, right? But if you're really tolerant and you're not racist, you don't care. If you see people suffering, it doesn't matter what color their skin is or what color is the skin of the people who are responsible for that suffering. Just call call out the wrongs that you see and and be colorblind. That's what the left wants to claim but they never take that high road, right? Despite Hillary Clinton, you know, when they go when they go low, we go high. They only go low. That's the only way they know to go is low. Today's financial advisors behave like pro wrestling TV commentators. They scream that the recovery is strong, debt is manageable, inflation is low, and that the Federal Reserve has everything under control. They may be oblivious, but the danger is real. Looking beyond the media hype can open a world of broader investing ideas. Euro-Pacific Capital is a registered investment advisor that offers stock-focused wealth management services that closely follow the strategy of our founder and CEO, Peter Schiff. We concentrate on those countries that are more closely in tune with Peter's vision of how capitalism is supposed to work. And these investments are not hard to find, provided you know where to look. Isn't it time you change the channel and let Euro-Pacific put a little reality back into your portfolio? If you live in the United States and have $25,000 or more to invest, call 800-727-7922. That's 800-727-7922. Non-U.S. residents access similar strategies through Euro-Pacific Bank at europacbank.com. Euro-Pacific Capital and Euro-Pacific Bank are affiliated companies. Hello, this is Peter Schiff. I bet you didn't know that without silver, you wouldn't be hearing this podcast right now or be able to use a computer at all. From laptops to smartphones to TVs to speakers, virtually all modern electronics use silver to conduct electricity. Did you know that the average solar panel uses two-thirds of an ounce of silver to function? And the solar industry is expanding dramatically, not just in America, but in booming developing nations like China and India. Silver is naturally antibacterial and is used extensively in modern medicine. Silver coatings are being added to breathing tubes, bandages, catheters, and other medical instruments to reduce the spread of infections. When antibiotics fail, silver still works. I believe the 21st century will be the century of silver. As fiat currencies continue to collapse and new uses are found for silver every day, the white metal strong industrial demand and low per ounce price will make it increasingly attractive to savers around the world. At today's prices, people of any age and background can afford to buy some silver. Learn why silver is a smart and reliable investment in my free special report, The Powerful Case for Silver. Visit shiftsilver.com and download it now. The Powerful Case for Silver includes information about silver's amazing chemical properties. It also explains why I believe silver may outperform gold in the coming years. Download The Powerful Case for Silver and educate yourself, your friends, and your family about the white metal. Just visit shiftsilver.com to download my free report. 
That's shiftsilver.com. 